0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the federal government negotiates an end to the blockades without actually ending the blockades. Is obesity a disease or a choice? And are Aboriginal land acknowledgments just empty words? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. It's been nearly a week since Justin Trudeau inked that deal, supposedly, with the Wet Suet and Hereditary Chiefs that have been in opposition to the Coastal Gas Link Project. And still, the blockades are across the country in full force. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show. Not going to be counting down the days until this is resolved, because according to Justin Trudeau, they were already on the path to resolution. Last weekend, they said they had all reached a deal and the Wet'suwet'en chiefs just had to go and talk, the hereditary chiefs rather, had to go and talk with the people they represent and this would ultimately take as long as up to two weeks. Well, a few things that have come to light since then. For starters, if it's about making sure that they have buy-in on the deal from the people they represent, why are we not letting the elected chiefs do this? Because the elected chiefs were elected by people and they're the ones that are already on board with the project. But then there's the most important part here, that this agreement between the federal government and these this minority of hereditary chiefs doesn't even deal with the pipelines. This is from CBC. All parties have made it clear the agreement touches only land and title rights generally. The natural gas pipeline itself remains in dispute. <laughs> so John Horgan, who's the premier of BC, has said the, that the project is underway. It's been approved and ratified. It's going to be completed. Well, tell that to the people that are blockading the work site, blockading rail lines across the country, uh, blocking highways and border bridges, because they don't seem to accept that, oh well it's already been approved it's going forward everything's fine No, what's actually happening here is the government has managed to be the victim of an elaborate con where it's negotiating something that has nothing to do with the source of the actual grievances right now that are causing these blockades. They weren't even negotiating based on the pipeline. Now to that, I would say good because it's not their job, it's not their role given that this project has already been approved, but it means that the government has actually actually been held hostage on something, and it's not even like they're negotiating for the same thing that the other people are protesting for. Now, I don't know how this was missed in the course of the process, or if the government in fact just didn't care. You know, there was a, another point in a Toronto Star article that I that I had to uh, acknowledge here, where the Carolyn Bennett, uh, who's the Indigenous minister, has said that they offered a deal that is significant, would recognize the nation's land rights over a vast a swath of territory in northwestern BC, and potentially prevent a quarrel, like what's happened from happening again. This is the best part. In return for that offer, which the Wet'suwet'en have pursued for years, Ottawa asked for nothing. The minister's office confirmed Monday. For 23 years and long before that, the Wet'suwet Nation has been wanting to begin to implement their rights in title. That's what Bennett said to the Toronto Star in an interview. So they're giving them something that they didn't ask for. They're giving them something in return for nothing and telling us that they were managing the crisis, that all is well, that nothing like this is going to happen again if the government is there to save us. Well, my goodness, where on earth are we supposed to find an ounce of confidence that the block blockades are going to end. And there was a, a great global news piece that I read interviewing a, a First Nations author who says that even if the hereditary chiefs get buy-in from the people they consult on this and agree to this and ratify this, it still won't mean an end to the blockades. He says this is Lee Miracle. It's not really up to what happens with the Wet'suwet'en and the government. It depends on the people making the blockades. Now, that underscores what I think is the biggest problem here, which is that we are not talking about a protest that's been driven by the people supposedly impacted the most by the pipeline project. This is ally theater, people that claim to be allies of the Wet'suwet and allies of the Hereditary Chief, people who are protesting because they want to protest, because they don't like government, they don't like pipelines, they don't like energy, and they're protesting not because they are indigenous some are, but rather because they want to latch on to that indigenous identity as a cover for what is at this point rampant lawlessness. Again, burning trains and the like. So this is fascinating to me that the government is unaware of how to negotiate because they're giving things away without asking for anything in return. And even doing that is apparently taking two weeks (laughs) <laughs> how how it takes two weeks to confirm that, yes, we will take this thing you're giving us without giving you anything in return. I have no idea. Perhaps the hereditary chiefs are just buying time because now the government is not going to crack skulls. Uh, and I, I know that's a crass expression, but you know what I mean of getting in there and just Breaking it up. Uh, And what's happening is the government is not going to do anything for two weeks and government will sit and wait. And then at the end of it, when they come back and say, "We, we have some concerns, we start the process all over again. So this is incredibly shrewd by these hereditary chiefs who were unelected, who have no legitimate leadership authority, but ultimately have managed to hijack a country's energy policy and suspend the rule of law indefinitely, and everyone just sits by and waits for it and accepts it. I mean, power to them. Bravo for doing that. There was an interview on APTN with Stephen Buffalo, who's the president and CEO of the Indian Resource Council, and and Stephen Buffalo was talking about the realities here that you're dealing with a lot of non-Indigenous protesters, first off, but moreover, what he pointed out, and I, I think this is an important point, is that a lot of these people are paid to be there. And he said this is something he's heard and experienced himself, people being paid to be there. And he says uh, in one particular part here, and I'll play the clip, environmental groups have come on reserves and offered $300 a person or, quote, $500 if they're wearing feathers, unquote, because they want it to look like this is an indigenous protest and not like just a bunch of white liberal so-called allies that are trying to pretend they're these indigenous heroes when in actuality they're just looking for an excuse to protest as we uh, shoot this episode we see uh, many of those youth and others that are out uh, taking part in demonstrations uh, blockades actions uh, in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who are opposed to coastal gas link uh, what are your thoughts on what you're seeing
1: well I, again I, I think there's a lot of misrepresentation um, of course we, we want to make sure the environment is paramount but in the same sense though, you know, who's really saying this message and, and when you see 20 elected chiefs give the authorization and that they want to work, they, they want to provide that economic opportunity for, for their, not only their people and the future of their people, um, I, I think that needs to be warranted, you know, and I, I think we have to investigate that thoroughly. Uh, but. The hard part again is, is is who's really pulling the string here. Uh, in 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 my view, based on some of the research that I've seen, you know, there there is a will that there's uh, to to landlock Canada's resources. When I spoke with uh, someone from the National Coalition of Chiefs
0: last week, uh, this is a group of First Nation and Métis leaders who are in support of resource development. The, he alleged that people come on reserve and, and offer hundreds of dollars to people to come out to these uh, protests. Is that
1: uh, something that you've ever heard of? Yes, actually, I have. You know, a friend of mine uh, that used to run the Treaty Seven Management Corporation uh, when when. Uh, Northern Gateway was approved, this environmental group came to his office and offered $300 per head of First Nation and $500 if they're wearing feathers. So uh, back then, he, he didn't really take too much into consideration the fact that it, the impact that it's going to have. Mm-hmm. But now it has a drastic impact, as you can see now.
0: And one interesting story is that Greenpeace was hiring a campaigner to, and they changed this, they changed the wording when people started talking about it online, $70,000 a year to, quote, scandalize, unquote, the fossil fuel industry. The job description says uh, Greenpeace Canada is seeking a campaign head to provide leadership in the development and implementation of our campaigns to fight against climate change and scandalize the fossil fuel industry in Canada. Now, the best part about it, I think, is that it requires people to be willing to travel globally and uh, within Canada as well. So nothing scandalizes the fossil fuel industry like uh, getting on airplanes and flying across the country on planes that are using fossil fuels like airplanes do. So unless they're, you know, hitchhiking on horse and buggy, which would be very difficult because you see the thing three kilometers away and you have to hold your thumb out for the whole time it takes to, to travel that... I don't know what Greenpeace is doing, but they take out the word scandalized because they realize, hmm, maybe it doesn't look too good on us if we're literally talking about terrorizing, which is, I think, a fair synonym for that, terrorizing an industry. Whatever happened to stakeholder meetings? Lobbying. You know, I did an interview a few weeks back with Michael Binion, who's from the Modern Miracle Network and obviously himself uh, an executive of, a, of an oil and gas company. And one of the things that I found interesting in talking to him is that the oil and gas sector has done far more on its own in relation to what government has forced the industry to do because they're aware that there is an environmentalist push that exists across the country. So they're trying to preempt a lot of this. They've invested in green tech. They've invested in clean tech. And by the way, a lot of these oil and gas companies, which collectively, I think, employ about 12,000 Aboriginals across the country, are investing in reserves and First Nations communities because these communities, which are trying to uh, see how they can leverage their natural resource assets, are saying, all right, come, teach us show us what to do, help us out here. And this is what Stephen Buffalo talks about in that APTN interview. And I can't play the whole thing. It's about 20 minutes, but I would encourage you to go and and take a look because there's a lot of interesting background there. And also a lot of things that will leave you wondering how on earth is anyone protesting these developments and protesting these projects. So this is where we are now. You've got a deal that doesn't actually address the problem. You've got a deal that is taking weeks before it comes back without any sort of real conclusion. You've got a government that for... 48 Hours was interested in taking down blockades and then decided they were going back to just discussing. But again, they aren't even discussing. And you've got actual indigenous Canadians who are suffering here because they can't benefit from the employment, the jobs, the economic development, the royalties, and all of these things that come along with these projects. So I would say First Nations are being harmed just as much, if not more, than other Canadians and other stakeholders here by these blockades being done under the supposed guise of allegiance with the hereditary chiefs. So why unelected people who disagree with the elected people have to go and consult with those they represent escapes me because the fact that the chiefs supporting this project were elected says, hmm, I think there's probably some buy-in from these communities. And no one can. And again, there was this poll that came out a week or week and a half ago, uh, where a lot of Canadians were saying Canada is broken, and the left got very outraged about that, and they started talking about how Canada is not broken and Canada is great. And one of the common threads I saw is that all of the people insisting that everything is fine in Canada and the country is not broken were people that have not had to ever wonder. About their future. They were people in this small, unfortunate group that is always assured of where it's going. And for people that the Canadian dream, if we can call it that, has left behind, it's easy to understand how they'd think the country is broken. And, you know, I would say that it's not controversial to acknowledge that Canada's relations with its First Nations are very much broken. And I tweeted something a couple of days ago that we should completely tear up the Indian Act and start from scratch, and literally rebuild a partnership with First Nations, with Indigenous Canadians moving forward. And I said that given there's a conservative leadership race going on right now, I would love to see conservative leadership candidates actually take the lead on this and make this a conservative issue. And there's no reason it can't be. There's no reason this can't be a a conservative issue. And I had a lot of people respond to say, Well, Maxime Bernier proposed that uh, in his platform, and I didn't know that, but the point is he's not in official opposition right now. The Conservative Party of Canada is. And whether I like or or dislike uh, the PPC platform, and I think there's a lot of good stuff in there, they didn't get the seats that they needed in the last election to make an impact right now. I know they can do things in the future, and I am going to continue to follow them. I'll be interviewing Maxime Bernier at some point in the coming weeks, I'm sure, But the point is is that you have to deal with the players that are on the field right now. And I would love to see the Conservatives champion a big reform on this because the Liberals aren't. I mean, the Liberals have absolutely failed on this. And the Liberals have beyond that, I I think, proven themselves to be no better than those ally theatrics uh, people in that they say we're going to be the party of reconciliation and have done more, I think, to let down Indigenous Canadians than previous governments have of, of different parties, Liberal or Conservative. So the reason I want to see this gone is that the Indian Act gets attacked from the left and the right, from indigenous and non-indigenous Canadians. No one seems happy with it. The only defenses that I've seen, uh, Pam Palmater, for example, in Macleans, had said, you shouldn't uh, assume that getting rid of the Indian Act will solve the problem. But she says later on in that same Macleans column that the Indian Act is a racist law. Uh, There were people saying that it would be offensive to make Jody Wilson-Raybould, when she was in cabinet, the uh, Indigenous Affairs Minister, because then she would have to preside over a racist act that she's been uh, combating in her life for years. So Indigenous Canadians don't like it. I would say that there's a lot of confusion in non-Indigenous Canadians about what this act actually does and, and what it means. And again, I just take from this that no one can say the status quo is working. No one can say that what we have now is actually effective or viable in the long term. So building something new from scratch would take two terms at least. It would be a a multi... I mean, it would be a generational project, but it would be so important. And you'd almost have to say, listen whatever we settle on, this is it. We're not going back to the drawing board. Uh, We're not uh, going to have these blockades. This is the deal. This is the agreement. We're going to take the time. It's going to be tough, but we're going to do it right. And while that sounds great in theory, and I realize that's my idea at this particular point, the problem is that what we're seeing now, the divide between the elected chiefs and the hereditary chiefs of one particular uh, region, means that you're not likely to have a national buy-in of one particular proposal from all First Nations across the country. They don't speak with one voice. They're they're, they're different communities. I mean, we think of Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal, but within the Aboriginal category, there are mohawk creo jibwa i mean all of these and even within those you have variances apparently where some one particular (laughs) community well not apparently i mean just look at what we're seeing now where the elected chief in one uh, community versus the uh, hereditary chief and they can't be in agreement on energy independence and uh, fulfilling resource resource demands So this is going to get worse before it gets better. And the problem now is that the protesters have proven the concept. They've proven that all you have to do is set up camp on rail blockades and the government will be like putty in your hands. And this is Justin Trudeau's legacy, proving that this is apparently an effective way to get things done. And that is something that has to stop because every project moving forward will be subjected to the same thing because of how they have avoided handling it right now we've got to take a break here when we come back more of the andrew lawton show here on true north you're tuned in to the andrew lawton show welcome back to the andrew lawton show here's a loaded question for you is obesity a choice or is it a disease or can it be both Now, if you're watching the video form of this, you'll know I'm not exactly a skinny mini myself, but nevertheless, it's an interesting topic and one that was explored in a Montreal Gazette op-ed that was also republished in the National Post by professors Sylvia Santosa and David Secco. And they talk about this idea of whether calling obesity despite its lifestyle factors a disease is more accurate when you look at the health implications of obesity and things like shorter lifespan, uh, openness to other conditions, and so on and so forth. But that also comes with another bit of baggage, which is that calling it a disease may, in some people's eyes, take away that idea that you can control it, that it's something that you choose, or you choose the factors that lead to it anyway. I want to talk about this in a little bit more detail with Professor Sylvia Santosa, an associate professor in the Department of Health, Kinesiology, and Applied Physiology at Concordia University, and one of the authors of this paper. Uh, Professor, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So let's talk about this idea of uh, what I found to be fascinating, the parallels between obesity and aging, which is a juxtaposition I have not seen before. Yeah, so what do you want to know? Well, more. I guess how is it viewed as a disease in that context, in your view?
2: Well, there's a lot of things that obesity and aging that are similar in obesity and aging. For example, if you think about all of the diseases and conditions that are associated with obesity, so when you think about that, you think of perhaps some of the common ones like cardiovascular disease, high cholesterol levels, uh, mobility issues. You think of maybe uh, type 2 diabetes and things. And if you think about... What those conditions are, and when those conditions usually occur, you'll find that they're all also related with aging, right? So the two of them are very similar. So that's how I first got this um, thing that perhaps obesity and aging are similar. And then if you look further into it, if you see, if you consider kids with obesity, then you'll find that these kids often do develop or are at higher risk of things like hypertension and cardiovascular disease and diabetes and or type 2 diabetes and these type of conditions were usually only seen in in adults right like they're only usually seen in adults historically but then you have children with obesity that are starting to to be at risk, or actually taking antihypertensive medications and things like this. So there's, I felt there's something obviously going on between um, what's happening in our tissues and obesity and how it's affecting it. And then when you dig down to more the molecular or the tissue or the cellular level, and even at the tissue level, you do see that there are some Differences or parallel similarities between what's occurring in obesity and what's occurring in aging now the mechanisms are not identical But a lot of them are are some of them are and then some of them are very similar. So for example, uh, you In obesity, but as we age we also have greater free radical formation. So that's more oxidative stress again you have a weakened immune system as we get older. You know, older individuals are more susceptible to illness. Uh, same thing in obesity. With obesity, we, uh, our immune systems get a little bit weaker, and we're, we can also be more susceptible to, to, um, to illness.
0: Now, one of the big distinctions that I think a lot of people would draw is that no matter how healthy you are, no matter how fit you are, uh, everyone's going to age, whereas obesity in most cases, I'd say, or or certainly many cases, you've got a lot more control over it. And does that disparity factor into your research?
2: Well, you know, that's a good question, because the whole idea that, oh, obesity, you've got a lot more control over it, um, sure, like aging is inevitable. But I think we also have to consider the fact that obesity is very hard to treat and it's not often a choice for a lot of individuals. You know, it's like um, it sort of occurs as a as an as a consequence of our our built environment. Perhaps like, you know, maybe there's no safe places to play, maybe it's hard to get food, maybe our busy lives make it difficult for us to cook meals at home, things like this, you know. So there's a lot of factors that um, factor into uh whether what someone's weight that I think are not necessarily a choice
0: one interesting aspect of this that I found is that you've said the obesity factor can accelerate aging and I'm wondering if that is something that really for a lot of people is exacerbating problems much further down the line that could have been dealt with earlier if uh, they were aware of this if they were getting treated and so on
2: Yes, well, you know, we've looked at uh, some of our research is really looking at how some of this may be reversible. So you end up treating obesity, if you lose a lot of weight, whether you can reverse some of these changes that are occurring in your body. And some, for some things, it appears that we can, and for other things, it appears we can't. Like, for example, changes in our DNA are more difficult to reverse than changes in inflammation, out as well. Um, those who've had, we have studies that look at individuals who had obesity since childhood and obesity since adulthood, those results are going to be coming out soon. So these are individuals who are adults who've had obesity, who have obesity, and they, um, We're looking at them from, they've had either obesity since childhood or obesity since adulthood. And we want to know what the differences are in these different types of obesity. And the idea being that there are, these are two different types of obesity and perhaps they need to be treated differently. Certainly we know that those individuals who've had obesity since childhood are at greater risk for, much greater risk for these various comorbidities or diseases and conditions associated with obesity.
0: So that's very similar to, perhaps not as exaggerated, but type 1, type 2 diabetes, is it not? That they that you could be looking at childhood obesity versus adult obesity as two separate conditions?
2: Well, that's my idea. That's the theory. But, you know, we need a little bit more research in order to, to, to delineate or to figure out what those differences actually are. For example, we already know uh, that individuals who've had obesity since adult cells versus those who've had obesity since childhood, they seem to have smaller and more numerous fat cells. And fat cell size is actually um, significant because that contributes to our susceptibility for metabolic disease.
0: So when you talk about that idea of viewing is viewing obesity as a disease, is that purely a semantics distinction or does that actually change a lot of the knowledge and treatment and approach to obesity? If you view it as a disease?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I really, there's, I mean, if you think about what exactly is a disease, right? Like what is a disease? If someone has cardiovascular disease, are you going to argue whether or not that's a disease? If someone has type two diabetes, are you going to argue whether or not that's a disease? Those are diseases that are associated with lifestyle similar to obesity. So obesity is also similar, associated with lifestyle. People often look at it as more or an adaptation to excess caloric intake and you know there's a stigma that's like oh people are doing it to themselves it's not people are not necessarily doing it to themselves it's just like people are not necessarily giving them themselves cardiovascular disease or giving themselves diabetes right like i i think that people the way people view obesity is that it's there's a much more accountability to the individual than to than disease and diabetes both have lifestyle components, right? Cancer has a lifestyle component. So um, I, I mean, I just think that we really, and both all, all these types of con- diseases are all difficult to treat and they all need medical intervention and, and things like that. So I think that there is a strong argument to view obesity as a disease rather than as a condition.
0: So it does in many cases come back to that stigma factor, and, and you could see some unintended consequences of that. If there was more of an environment to view it as a disease, people might be more uh, open to seeking treatment than if it's just uh, you right. know lifestyle only or viewed as lifestyle only. Not to mention the way that some healthcare practitioners might view it.
2: Exactly, like in terms of the approaches in the healthcare system, in terms of what's covered, in terms of by by healthcare. Um, in terms of the types of treatments that are available, in terms of the types of research that's being done on it. You know, I think there's a lot of benefits in terms of viewing it as a disease, because I think in viewing it as a disease, we can maybe look at it as, okay, well, maybe we need to adjust how we're approaching individuals with obesity to more effectively provide them with treatment or prevention of other comorbidities and diseases
0: concordia university health professor sylvia Santosa joining me on the line professor thanks very much for your time really appreciate it
2: thank you very much for having me
0: very interesting stuff my thanks again to the professor for her time we've got to take another break when we come back more of the andrew lawton show here on true north stay tuned you're tuned in to the andrew lawton show Welcome back. Speaking of health stories, (laughs) this one has to be uh, one of my more amusing examples of Trump derangement uh, converging with health policy research here. Uh, Trump's 2016 win may have resulted in fewer boys born in Ontario, according to a study published in BMJ Journal. They found that there was a short-term decline in the number of boys born in Ontario three to five months after the U.S. election in November 2016. They say the shift in the sex ratio of newborn babies was apparent in only politically liberal-leaning areas and not in conservative parts. And what the researcher said, an endocrinologist at Mount Sinai Hospital, the idea that liberal-leaning parts of the province might have perceived that event, the outcome as an election, as an adverse societal stressor, whereas conservative-leaning parts of the province might not have seen it that way. So (laughs) what they have here is this idea that if you're stressed, you are less likely, apparently, to have a boy, and if everything's fine, I guess you'll have boys. So boys only come when the world is fine and the, the world is as it should. But they're arguing that uh, to have fewer boys after the election in liberal areas means that Trump is responsible for it, which means, though that President Donald Trump may be the greatest contributing factor to less toxic masculinity because there are fewer males. So in many respects, maybe some of the people on the left should be thanking him for this if we accept all of these things at face value. Uh, apparently, the researcher, uh, Dr. Retina Karen, said he and his team had to wait three to five months after the election for the babies to be born to see if there was an impact on the sex ratio. So it sounds like he was trying to find... A disparity. And you always have to be very cautious when someone is looking for a very specific outcome. Not that there's a problem with having a thesis, but it sounds like he was ready and willing right after the election. Okay, let's see what this does to the boys that are born. And then what do you know? Found that fewer boys after the election. That's a fun one. Also, in health news, we have in Australia, major panic. Coronavirus is causing everyone to clear everything off of the shelves. You can't find toilet paper. In Australia, apparently. So one newspaper, NT News, decided to print a few extra pages that you can use as toilet paper. So if you can't find your uh, Charmin or whatever is on the shelves of Australia, Cottonelle, I buy this stuff all the time. I have no idea what the brand names are. Cottonelle and Charmin, I think. The the bear dancing, I think, is charming. Maybe it's an Australian bear. Who knows? Uh, you can just uh, clip a few pages of your newspaper. And uh, no idea how it's going to feel. Probably not as soft and smooth as the kittens on uh, the Royale or the Cottonelle. Okay, all these brands are flooding to me now. Not as soft as the kittens, but uh, desperate times call for desperate measures when it comes to the coronavirus panic. Which brings us to the most desperate and sad coronavirus story of them all. Courtesy of Vice. Coronavirus porn is going viral on Pornhub. Amidst a global health crisis, the article said, porn finds a way. And this is evidently the saddest point of society. I would say bring on the meteor and I'd say bring on the coronavirus if this is what we're going to do with our life and this is what we're going to (laughs) do with our uh, freedom and free speech moving forward. Uh, But apparently there is one particular video where a CDC agent investigates a deserted Wuhan and then finds someone and in true Uh, You know, the cable man is here, fashion, uh, hijinks of a sexual variety ensue. I'm not going to play any video of that particular chapter, but this is what you have to be aware of in the post-coronavirus age is that porn will find a way and we are all just so in need of being ashamed of ourselves, I would think, if we've contributed to that in some way. Uh, While we're on with this rapid-fire round, here's a a great video. Angela Merkel's interior minister refused to shake her hand because of coronavirus. Have a look. (laughs) Yeah, there you have it. She doesn't seem to be offended by it. She kind of smirks and smiles. But imagine like never shaking the hand of the head of government anywhere else in any other point of the year. And I think like if you don't shake uh, Kim Jong-un's hand in North Korea, you're getting executed. If you don't uh, shake Donald Trump's hand, uh, you're certainly going to have some mean tweets about you. But Angela Merkel so far, it seems like has not fired her interior minister. So uh, he's following the coronavirus protocol, even if she isn't. It's like last week we were talking about on the show with the uh churches the anglican churches in toronto that are only giving uh only, only encouraging smiles and waves not hugs and handshakes as we uh, deal deal with coronavirus so I, you know it's funny i got a few emails from people because i did ask for your thoughts last week about whether you're panicked or not and, and it seems like i'm not alone in believing that it's probably somewhere in between this is something we should be panicking over and you know, this is nothing. So I was actually glad I wasn't alone because I thought I'd get hit from both sides on that by people saying, you know, you're fear-mongering and other people telling me, uh, you know, you should be stocking up on doomsday supplies right now. And I had uh, an interesting uh, conversation with a friend of mine who said they were getting a go-bag And I'm thinking, why on earth are you getting a go bag when the whole point of coronavirus is you want to avoid being around other people? It's like actually the introverts dream that you don't need to go out. And this is being prescribed by doctors and government. Don't leave and don't have human contact. That sounds like a pretty sweet deal a lot of the time. Uh, So for people that are stocking up on hand sanitizer, just stock up on food, because if you aren't going to leave your house, the hand sanitizer isn't going to help you. You will need to eat. So, like, I don't know if Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes, if they're going to have to start prescribing their drivers with coronavirus masks, because the people most likely to be ordering food delivery, people quarantining themselves, so I could make my first million, have a Skip the Dish branded uh, coronavirus mask and license it to them, or just make a a mask that you can put a a branded logo on and start selling that. This is actually not a bad idea. Maybe we should uh, crowdfund for this. In any case... This story I want to talk about before we wrap things up for today. Brampton City Council passes a motion requiring Indigenous land acknowledgments in all public facilities and parks. Now, the motion is technically just to get the city staff to do a report on it, so they're not installing the signs right now. But the uh, mover of this, Councillor Charmaine Williams, has said it's a motion to post land acknowledgement on all city-owned parks and facilities, everything to do with a library, a city museum, a park community center ball diamond sports field you name it she thinks there should be a big thing on there that acknowledges the traditional territory of the indigenous ancestors of the land and the problem with this is that and i was talking earlier about the need to rebuild relationships with indigenous people a lot of indigenous people that i've spoken to and i won't say it's all of them but of the ones I've spoken to about this, find the land acknowledgements to be pretty ridiculous because it's never accompanied by action. They think that, yes, acknowledging the history and the heritage is fine, but if you're going to get up there and say, we hereby acknowledge we're on the Chippewas of the Thames or the Port Credit, the Mississaugas of the Port Credit or whatever, and then you do nothing else to acknowledge or respect them, it's just empty words. It's empty words. So when this idea of let's put up a big sign that says this is the traditional land, it's, well, are you giving it back? Are you returning it? Is it their land? Are you giving it? I mean, there was that great bit. I think it was the Baroness Von Sketch Show, which is one of the few uh, Canadian comedies that's on TV now that I really like. And they were mocking the idea of the land acknowledgement because it is so empty there. It was in front of a movie or whatever. And they say, oh, are, are we giving them a portion of the proceeds? Well, no. I mean, oh, well, are, are we giving them the theater? Well, no. Well, should we leave? No, no, no. Stay. It's, you can watch the movie. Because again, it, a lot of the time it's just words. And even the people saying the words, I don't think necessarily agree or believe or even think about it. They're just going through these motions. So I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledgements, except they become farcical. I was at an event a year ago, year and a half ago, and someone did a land acknowledgement. And then someone else on the panel didn't want to be one up. So they did their own. And they said, I want to acknowledge uh, his acknowledgement and add my own. And then at a certain point, it's like everyone was feeling left out if they didn't acknowledge in some way. And that is theatrical, and I would argue it does nothing for Indigenous people. It's not putting clean water on reserves. It's not giving employment. It's not doing anything. It's just words. And the problem with these acknowledgements is that if they are not accompanied by action, you shouldn't be doing them anyway, because you are not respecting the tradition you claim to be respecting. And if you are doing action, then why do you need the words? So it's one of these things that is just completely virtue signaling to the nth degree in any case we have to wrap things up my thanks to all who supported the show listened to the show and wrote in since last episode we'll talk to you next week with more of canada's most irreverent talk show this is the andrew lawton show on true north thank you god bless and good day canada thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show support the program by donating to true north at www.tnc.news